And we're back! And we're gonna be starting this off with Masthead's Haunted Hayride. Fall on the North Coast is the most nostalgic of the four seasons of this. The days get shorter, the nights get cooler, and the leaves start to change. We're taken back to times telling ghost stories by a campfire. Trick or treat and hay rides at Pumpkin Patch. These are often some of our best memories with haunted friends. While we hope you're not doing any trick or treats of your own these days, we hope that you enjoy the beer with those closest to you as we take on the next generation out to earn their weight in candy. Hayride is an amber ale brewed with pumpkin, cinnamon, nutmeg, and ginger. Again, this is coming to us from Mastheads. Mastheads. It's a favorite of the podcast. Cleveland, Ohio, baby. We've uh, done many, many nights with Mastheads. They're awesome, and they're local. So, right off from the get-go, remember you pour in a 45 degree until you're about two-thirds of the way down, pour down the center to release the CO2. And wow, that is a deep amber. That's that's almost a walnut, Gumby. I mean, that's a deep, deep amber. Oh yeah, this thing is seven point three percent. It's not messing around. Do you smell that? That is incredibly fresh. I smell the cinnamon and the nutmeg right on the top. Oh yeah, definitely. Oh man, so it's crisp. There's almost a flowery. There overtone it to it on the very top. Yeah. Mm. Man. It's not too heady. The nutmeg on the second sip is a little heavier, though. Like, the first sip, you get the, you get the, uh, the cinnamon. The second sip, the nutmeg kind of overtakes that. Yeah. That's nice. Definitely. That's nice. It's smooth. It, it tastes like fall. Like, fall just came to my mouth. I mean, it's, it's nice. Fall closer to summer to me. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I expected it to be a little bit more heavy because it's, you know, it is seven point it's it's dangerous then because yeah. I would just it's very smooth and I would keep drinking this. Yes. It's very smooth. And this then I'm is, sure I would get hit like a sledgehammer. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of those you probably shouldn't do more than a pint yeah. at any given time. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, no, that's not good, to draw though. attention. That's good. Not to draw attention away from that delicious beer, but have you guys ever had Masthead's Jalapeno IPA? Oh yes, that's yeah. one of my that is, favorite IPAs. I'm a, it's phenomenal. I'm on nachos. It's so good. It's, <laughs> it's so, so good. They don't. Yeah. They don't really make too many bad things. No. Uh, no. No. Their favorite, my ultimate favorite from Masthead's. I'm sorry, we're geeking out on this brewery here, but <laughs> um, is their Imperial. Underverse that it's is aged in bourbon barrels amazing. and it only comes out one time a year and it's right around the holidays. Yeah, yeah. It, I don't. It's heaven in a cup for me. Yeah, I'm pretty pretty sure we have featured that every year in the podcast just yeah. because it's so good. I mean, it's it's <laughs> Masthead is one of those places that definitely takes time to understand what a beer is supposed to taste like for every season of the year. Yeah, yeah. And it's only in small batch barrels too, so they're they're pretty uh. Hush, hush about that process. They run out fast. Like, yeah. like I can't tell you how many times I've gone down there to pick up one of their brews, and it's gone. Yeah. Like, their small batches are just that well-known. Mm-hmm. But that jalapeno one is a lot of fun, man. Yes. I, that's one of my favorite IPAs. I, and it's not it's not spicy. It's just delicious. Yep. I mean, I mean it is spicy, but yeah. it's like, it, it just defies what you think spice is. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. It, 
Defines what IPA is. You cannot compute it. It's <laughs> yes. amazing. But it's yeah. not over the top. Nothing they do is really over the top. No, it's just right. It's, it's, no, no, absolutely Everything's not. balanced. It's just balanced. Although their spicy one is still that sweet mango habanero. That's there's Ooh. oh it's so good it's 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 hot and spicy and it's it's all kinds of goodness yeah yeah this is a good scholarship in a cup right <laughs> speaking <laughs> of which Zechariah take us back to your comments from uh, where we left off <laughs> all right I was just asking about uh, the set Apophis uh, connection and Falk was destroying my hopes and dreams. Of, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. European connection. You can't put me anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you already, you already destroyed, destroyed my mind. Now I have to re, uh, reevaluate what is a biblically accurate angel. We're going to, I understand. You have to change the memes yet again. <laughs> you mean angels have wings? <laughs> humanoid, humanoid women with wings. It's like everything we've, uh, Discarded over the years, right? I wish I would have known that before I got that tattoo, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think twice about that tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> I think twice about any tattoo, but... <laughs> Doggone it, Dump, Gumby, that uh, tramp stamp came back to you, huh? Yeah. Gosh, what are you going to do? <laughs> so... He whisked away. <laughs> so, angels. Go ahead. I want to know more. So, more about angels. Be, yes, more about angels. I mean, from from uh, from that well balanced Christian slash Egyptian slash uh, early Jewish standpoint. Okay, well, angels really go back to the garden. I mean, this shouldn't really surprise us. You know, when Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, we have to realize that uh, creation is essentially organized as sacred space. It's, it's a kind of temple. Creation is a kind of temple. So the Garden of Eden is really sort of a holy of holy place where Adam and Eve, man, the newly created mankind, is in communion with God directly. Okay. And when they sin, they bring profane, uh, profanity into the holy place. That's why they have to be driven out. Okay. And the angels then, you know, they're they're the agents to drive out that holiness hmm. or that, that, that profanity. They drive out that profanity. Okay. And we see this too in, in, in all the, um, say, the ancient Near Eastern myth as well. You know, when we, we talked a little bit about the two symbols of holiness in ancient Egypt, you know, the winged goddesses basically sanctifying whatever's in their between the wings – but there was also these Uraeus um, cobra goddesses. And what they did was they uh, blasted fire against any profanity that tried to enter the holy space. Okay. Hmm. So uh, on the uh, Genesis side, um, mm -hmm. the way it's told, because you know, I read, of course, through like many people who read through Leo Heiser's works and stuff, um, there's the idea that the first two chapters are really telling kind of like a temple ceremony. Now, are you tracking with that or do you think there's something else going on? I haven't read Heiser's view on this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in fact, I've actually done much more work with, say, the uh, flood narrative as far as its, um, its use of, say, sacred furniture. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know what Heiser has said on okay. this, so I can't comment on it. And and he's commenting more towards, uh, say, Dr. Walton, you know, and, and he agreed with him. And so that's why I was kind of like, there's, there's two different scholars kind of agreeing with the temple ceremony of Genesis 1 and 2. Yeah. So there, also- there's, there's, there's definitely a temple motif there. There's even a, um, say, a sacred image or an, an idol motif happening there, too. Okay. You know, because in the ancient Near East, idols were considered to be, you know, empty vessels that the spirit of the god filled in. So, so when we when we look at say mankind made in the image of God and in his likeness, it's using two different words that are often used for idols. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that image and the demote, the, the um are 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 both say say, you know, images of say, you know, that you would ascribe to say idols, votive idols or idols for common area worship. Hmm. So you do have that imagery in there. It's very strong temple imagery in in, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And we also find religious imagery even in, say, the flood narrative. Okay. Yeah, so, and I believe uh, Genesis 2, 2, 3 kind of continues some of that idol stuff, right? Because I, I forget, like, is it McDowell? But I think... It was originally Becker like did like uh, a whole thing on the Miss P Pit P and forgive me if I'm butchering Egyptian. Uh, <laughs> I'll just spell it out. W P T dash R or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's like idol idol cr- creation rituals. Come on, Zach. You got to get it right, man. You got to get it right. You <laughs> <laughs> can't move on till you get it right. <laughs> So well, idols in, 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 in ancient Egypt could be, you know, destroyed or rebuilt mm-hmm. accordingly. You know, you know, it wasn't uncommon for idols to be recycled. Mm. Okay. Well, that's interesting. They weren't, they weren't as sacred as we might think of them today. So they're kind of like, they're renting them out and like, okay, this God is like. Well, the, you know, the- if, let's say, let's say you wanted to build a new temple. You could raise that uh, a king who had the authority to say raise that entire temple straight to the ground hmm. and rebuild it bigger, and that would cause no okay. problem in the continuity of the religion. Uh, okay. In fact, it happened during the reign of Amenhotep III, where he takes Luxor Temple and completely raises it to the ground to turn it ninety degrees. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Before it used to face the river, he then turned it 90 degrees to face Karnak Temple. And he did that for ideological purposes. But then again, he built it bigger and better in the process. Hmm. Wow. So in a New Testament context, it's almost like when Herod was rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Well, there's always, there's always, we always have to keep in mind that there are rituals for and um, allowed procedures for destroying holy articles, just as there's procedures for for inaugurating holy articles. Okay. Like, for example, the, the proper method for destroying any holy article in Israelite religion is by fire. Ah, okay. That's not sacrilege. Just like, for example, you know, when we, like, we do the same thing with flag ceremonies. You know, when the American flag is American flag is decommissioned, 
it's supposed to be rolled up and burned. Yeah. That's not a sacrilege. No. And that's the proper disposal. It's so the proper destruction of a holy icon, as it were. So, it, it, you know, no, it's, it's, it's so, oh, yeah. so I say this as a Canadian. Okay. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Canadian no, no. gang. No, so, so no, he's right. So to play off of this, get this. So to play off of this. So I'm Catholic. Okay. And it's okay. If I, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so to play off of that, no, if we have, uh, uh, brown scapulars and we have rosaries, right? So with a brown scapular or a rosary, if they break or if they are no longer usable, we are to either dispose of them in fire, right? Yeah. As a purification method or yeah. to bury them deep into the ground. So th- yeah. th- those are the two proper methods to uh, take care of our sacred objects, you know, yeah. on, the, on the Catholic side. So very similar. It's very similar. When the Babylonians destroy the temple, they do it with fire. They take all the holy articles and they melt them essentially in these massive furnaces. By the way, these are the same furnaces that are used in the attempted execution of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, wow. Okay. That's cool. (laughs) These are furnaces large enough to stand in. And what they were done was you took, say, sacred barks uh, from various cultures, you brought them into these, these furnaces, and you melted them down for the precious metals. Hmm. So what's the symbolic meaning if a temple isn't destroyed correctly with fire? Well, if if it isn't destroyed uh, correctly, that is at that point, that is, um, um, you know, sacrilege. Hmm. Yeah. And this is what happens, say, to Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, when he starts drinking from the holy articles. Hmm. Okay. He commits sacrilege at that point because he's taken articles that were dedicated for the temple of the Lord and he starts drinking wine out of them. Like he's having a party. That's sacrilege. Yeah. Cause it's an improper use of the articles. Now, if he had just taken those gold vessels and melted them, there wouldn't be a problem. Hmm. Okay. But because he used them in an improper way. Now he has the judgment of God resting on him. Fascinating. So, this was something that he knew he was doing wrong within his own culture and still mm-hmm. did it. So yeah. it's not just that uh, he, did, he didn't know and was just using these anyway. It was that he is specifically committing an act which would be unwise for sort of any king in general, which is to commit sacrilege against any god whatsoever. Yeah. Speaking of which, like I was already already wanting to – uh, ask you something way back when you said the Egyptian cobra goddesses are like breathing fire. So yeah. what is exactly the role of fire in like ancient Egypt? Because I've been paying attention to a lot of the fire motif all the way mm-hmm. into the New Testament. So yeah. Well, these are these are symbols that are analogous to the Hebrew seraphim. Mm. Okay, seraph me in Hebrew means to burn. Mm-hmm. These are the burning angels. These are the angels that destroy with fire. Okay. So the cobra goddesses, the, the Uraeus and the Wajit, they are analogous symbols. So we find these symbols of, of cobras, you know, being, say, emblematic of, 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 of fire as a purification mechanism. So we do find that same sort of motif in ancient Egypt. 
Wow. But in the case of, say, the Uraeus, it's the fire that comes from the sun. So it's solar fire. Okay. Hmm. And it's kind of almost like a death ray effect, to be honest. <laughs> because it, it's, it's, it's really aimed uh, directly in front of, of the cobra goddess, not behind it. Anything behind the cobra goddess is protected from that. This is why the king wears two amulets on his head. On his forehead, you will find a cobra goddess and a vulture goddess. The king is sort of a walking temple. Fascinating. And those okay. amulets protect him as a holy space, a temple of kingship. Well, that's fa- okay, so this one. Okay, so that's new to me. That's that's new to me. I didn't know that. That's freaking cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, does fire usually have kind of these? dual purification and judgment aspects. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. It can it can it can destroy you. It can it can protect you. It depends on how it's oriented. Like I said earlier, all deity in ancient Egypt was uh, were dualistic. They had a good coming and a bad coming. Mm. They could protect you or they could they could burn you. They could harm you. Huh. And that is very interesting especially when we get even closer to a New Testament context and say Malachi three and four, because you have Malachi three, you have this uh, imagery of the deity coming with refining fire as like uh, mm-hmm. stuff. And the next chapter, he's burning the wicked. Yeah. And then all the way into Paul, when he's talking about you're saved as by means of fire. And then there's destruction language right, right next to that. Oh yeah. Like, like the parable of the weed and the chaff. Yes. The weed and the tares. The tares are then bundled up and thrown in the fire. Hmm. The same thing. Peter grabbing Lot, Peter grabbing Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus saying, remember Lot's wife, you know, removing, saving from the fire, but the fire saves, it purifies mm-hmm. at the same time. So you have that all the way back to Genesis. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. So exploring just a little bit outside the text is any of that in play when we hit 70 AD and the temple itself is brought down by fire? Mm. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, then what does the New Testament is not specific on that, but yeah, that would be the same sort of destruction. Fascinating. So that would just- Basically what they would do, what they would do is when they destroy a temple like that, they would just take all the chaff and hay and, and stubble they can find, pack that temple set it on fire, and it pretty much topples itself. Yeah, because the, the historians were very, very explicit in this, where it said that yeah, no stone was left on another, and mm-hmm. all metals were burned. Yeah, so they would start, they would, they, with the destruction of any temple like that, they would start with burning it. Fascinating, okay. That's how, that's how they, they begin. Uh, that, and, and the fact is that temple also had wood paneling on the inside, yep. which helped burn um, so basically what they would do is just, just put as much combustible material as they can in it, set the whole thing on fire. And as, at that point, the mortar cracks, the stones crack, and they can just tear the whole thing down. It's pretty easy. Same way as they, they, they would, uh, just say, destroy the walls of medieval castles, which is you bore a hole, you set a fire underneath it, and then it just comes down. That's before C4. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that is expressly fascinating. 
little mind blowing. I mean, that you talked about. Go ahead. I was going to say through time because you're you're seeing this from the time uh, of Genesis all the way through into 70 AD, and to see contextually. Mm these same things playing throughout like 2000 years of biblical history is just, it's mind blowing. Well, you know, this is actually a real boon that when, when a place gets destroyed by fire, that's actually a real boon for archeologists. Archeologists love when cities are destroyed by fire because it leaves a beautiful, pristine destruction layer. Hmm. And those destruction layers are, in unmistakable in the stratigraphy. You can find out exactly when a city was destroyed by its destruction layer. Wow. You compare it to whatever was the terminal pottery at the time, and you've got a date for a destruction of any city. Okay. So you're saying patterns... Fire-preserving evidence. Yeah. Like, like, for example, at Hatsor. At Hatsor, we know that city was destroyed. I mean, it had a continuous occupation from the early Bronze Age right up to about 1200, 1220 BC because there's only one distinct destruction there. there. Hmm. Now, if you recall, Hatzor was destroyed by fire by Joshua. That's true. So we can, we can pinpoint when the Joshua conquest was just from hot sore. It is. It is. Give us a date. Give us a date. You jumped ahead of me. I think I did give me. you a date. <laughs> Weren't you listening? <laughs> 1200, 1220 BC. So, okay. And that corresponds, <laughs> I'm assuming that corresponds then with like Jericho, right? We have two destructions for Jericho. We have a 1550 uh, destruction. That's, that's uh, Kathleen Kenyon's uh, city four. There's also a late bronze destruction layer that was discovered by Garstang. Okay? Oh. That one dates to roughly 1200, 1220. Oh. Okay. And that and was recently, you know, we also got some confirmation evidence. I mean, there was other evidence there. Like, for example, we have uh, scarabs from Amenhotep III in the cemetery at, at Jericho. But there's also, say, um, the recent works of... Um, Lorenzo Nigro, who discovered that there was site leveling done during the late Bronze Age at Jericho as well, which opens up a whole new realm of uh, possibilities here with many of these cities, like, um, um, say, the classical identification of, of, say, I. So there's there's some really interesting research that's coming out now on this. Really Sweet. interesting research. Wow. Yeah, so when you have the left saying, you know, sorry, Keith, white lamb, Keith white lamb, not you. Uh, white lamb <laughs> is, is trying to say there's no evidence evidence for the exodus or there's no evidence of occupation. Uh, you know, it's a misreading on both sides. Uh, when you read the first part of Joshua, the first 11 chapters, it sounds like he burned and destroyed and killed everybody. But when you actually read the rest of Joshua and Judges, you get a more detailed picture of, okay, you know, I gave you the overall view, but actually only three cities are mentioned being burned, and Hatzor is one of them, you know, tell Dan. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Hatzor, so when you take I, Jericho. Yes. So when you take the actual text literally, when you're supposed to, it's only three cities, and that's the evidence we have three cities uh, being burned. And so you can go through, you can track through, and I don't know what resources you might suggest, 
for for the audience to dig into to, to get a little bit of an idea of this. But you know, Long and and some of the others, Provan and whatever, uh, even um, uh, his name is slipping me now. But um, anyway, the different uh, scholars have have allowed us to understand that the biblical history is acceptable. There is data points that we can track and we can follow through. And you don't have to be to the to the left with all these crazy theories that there's no evidence. And you don't have to be to the right and take it too far and say, oh, Joshua killed everybody. And then, <laughs> then you have a Christian apologist saying, well, if he killed everybody, then I don't want to worship that God because that God killed everybody. You know, So it's neither one or right. You have to go yeah. in the middle where the data actually takes you. And so follow the evidence. So that, yeah, follow the evidence, which is what I really resonated with Dr. Falk originally when he said on uh, I can't remember one of his interviews or even his own channel where he says I'm an evidentialist. I go wherever the evidence leads me. So I don't allow my uh, well. Let me give you this example: archaeology. When you dig up something out of the ground, that doesn't prove anything. You just have something you dug up out of the ground. I, Irene Runter, I love her story where some archaeologists dug up something and they had this wild theory. It wasn't, wasn't really wild. It was just a theory of how they thought it was used. And Irene Winter, being in India, saw how Indians were using this similar thing today. <laughs> that they've been practicing these rituals for thousands of years and they're just worshiping their Hindu gods and they're using it. She says, I know exactly how they used it back then because they're still <laughs> using it like that in India today. So we can have wrong interpretations about things we dig up out of the ground. Yeah. So not only do you have misinterpretation of the text, but you have misinterpretation of the data. And so people like White Lab are going to say, you know, the Bible is wrong, that Joshua did not conquer. And, and they paint this wrong picture. And then There's Christians a- who... Ha- Go ahead. Sorry. There's a there's a famous um, object that was recovered from a uh, prehistoric uh, German burial, and they thought it was a crown. It turns out it was a bucket. <laughs> a German. <laughs> and you look at the reconstruction, and then they try to make it look like a crown, and it's it's kind of hinky. <laughs> but it turned out it was a bucket. <laughs> what if it's the bucket king? <laughs> the bucket king. Well, <laughs> and it's both. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Well, yeah, I would suggest man. like the uh, Trimper Longman and uh, Long and and whatnot have have a recent book about 2015 on biblical history of Israel. I think that would be something that if you want some data points to follow, uh, if you want to dig deeper here, uh, more than just Dr. Fox channel, but. Uh, you know, some other books, too, that kind of introduce some of these ideas, because you get this viewpoint from the right or the left, and they're both wrong, and yeah. it's sad. Yeah. And they go over the line, way over, and, and, and you're, like, forced to choose between the two, and it's like, you know, one of the answers on my exams I give my students, you know, E, none of the above. I don't want either one. <laughs> I don't want the right or the left because you're both wrong. You know, there's a sensible way to to do this, and you don't have to paint this as black or white or gray or whatever. You just have to follow the evidence. And that's what yeah. I love about Dr. Falk's message is dive into the evidence. You don't have to shift things 300 years. You don't have to do all this massive gymnastics to try to, you know, uh, 
compete in the Olympics of scholarship. You just have to go with the data and you can have plausible reasons to believe what you believe okay. and they're protected and, and yeah. you have logical ways to go, okay, yeah, that's one way you see the data points, but I see it this way and I accept the Bible as a witness because yeah. they're back then and they wrote it back then and they're discussing yeah. things back then. And I can see where their testimony aligns with the data points from other cultures. And you're trying to just, you have this penchant against the Bible or you have this penchant that Joshua killed everybody because you take one verse like first Kings six, one, and that has to be true. And then you manipulate so many other verses in the Bible hmm. that you turn the Bible into something it's not. And so that's a dangerous thing. And I wanted to bring Dr. Falk on to, to be able to exemplify that so that we could well, understand. When, yeah. When we look at say, I mean, the, the first King six, one is a perfect example because they have to then go back and change the destruction of hot sword. Because the dating for hot sword doesn't fit oh, yeah, the, the, the Exodus. So what they have to do is they have to say, oh, that that wasn't destroyed by 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 Joshua. That was destroyed by Deborah. Mm. Mm. So what's what happens is they end up having to change the biblical text to meet the ideology. Okay. Uh, and then the evidence no longer fits the uh the original. Yeah. 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 And then people people yeah. that are outside of this field like David <clears throat> Fox field then grab onto it as either apologists or authors or whatever and they write their things based on bad Egyptology. Right. <laughs> and then and then they're trying to battle as a Christian on YouTube the secular viewpoints and they got the wrong data points because they didn't go to someone like Dr. Fox research or, yeah. or this stuff that he offers. And so you're off and, and it's a battle between two people, the right and left and neither one of them's right. And no one's going to win because you're both wrong. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, you don't need that. And so we have all this drama on the internet for apologists and, it, and it's stupid because yeah. you're both wrong. <laughs> no, Theo, to your it's point just ridiculous. though. I think here in the West, at least. Tell us how you really feel about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to your point, Theo, here in the West, being somewhere or anywhere moderate is evil. It's easier to keep us right, left, black, white, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, yes. McDonald's, Burger King. It's easy, to, it's easy to keep us here in the West doing that stuff. And so I would imagine the same applies to the scholar scholarly world uh, because – you know, if, if Christ's church is divided, then we'll all be chasing our own tails and we won't be doing anything productive. So right. I think there is motive to do that. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I really appreciate, you know, I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle of being moderate. Yeah. Um, which leads me to two questions, Dr. Fault, I have for you. <laughs> really quick questions or hopefully they're quick, but um, have you been on a hunt like in Egypt, like a find or anything like that? And B, uh, what what would you hope to find in Egypt one day that hasn't been found yet that you would really love one day? Like, man, if we found that. Good questions. Uh, okay. Uh, mostly what I deal with is texts. Okay. okay. I have been into Egypt several times. I have been involved with the dig. Uh, I was involved uh, with the dig at Teleborg. Oh, wow. Um, but um, I'm not really a digger. I'm okay. not really an excavator. Okay. I'm 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 a, I'm a text guy mostly. I basically I'm a historian. Okay. And you get you get Egyptologists that are all across the map here. Mm -hmm. A lot of Egyptologists never dig. Yeah. 
Okay, a lot of them do say texts. Some of them do language. Some of them do say, I mean, like his history, like I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people will just, you know, take the fines after they're 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 dug up and process them. I mean, you even you even find data analysts, GIS mappers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a really broad field and and not necessarily one that involves digging. Gotcha. Now, with that said, I think there is a lot of um, potentially great finds still to be discovered in Egypt. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the estimates are right now that 95% of Egyptian discoveries still remain under the sand. Wow. Ooh. There's a lot that can be found. Wow. You know, um, uh, there was a, there's a um, um, satellite mapping project that was done that has discovered whole pyramids underneath the sand. What? Get out. Yep. Wow. Whole pyramids <laughs> underneath the sand. Wow. So mm-hmm. do they correspond like, to constellations? Like <laughs> pyramids or pyramid pyramids? <laughs> now, I understand that the top has been removed. The top is removed, but the base remains. Okay. And those are visible from satellite photography. Okay. If the process correctly. Stargate. Okay. <laughs> fascinating. That is fascinating. Mm-hmm. So in relation, are are they remotely close to like say Giza or are they like way, way off and they're like in the distance? Well, it depends. Most most of the finds in Egypt are relatively close to the river. Okay. Okay. Because it's a river culture. Yeah. Everything in ancient Egypt revolves around the river. You know, sometimes I'm asked, you know, are the pyramids, you know, oriented according to the stars? Right. And it's like, no, they're not. Right, right. (laughs) They're oriented towards the river. That was tongue in cheek. (laughs) They're they're, they're all oriented towards the river. They actually face the river. You can actually see where the river bends and the pyramids kind of bend with the river. Yeah. Yeah. And, And part of that was a practical, very practical reason. Sure. Which is that. Pyramids were constructed with stones that were placed on boats and the boats were moved as close as they could to the pyramid. That makes absolute sense. (laughs) You could, it's amazing how much tonnage these boats could actually uh, handle. Hmm. Uh, There's a, there's a ostraca that shows a boat with two obelisks on it. Now obelisks are not light. No, they weigh hundreds of tons. Yeah. You know, I think the largest uh, obelisk is estimated at 1,200 tons. The miracle of, this, of displacement, right? Yeah. There's a <laughs> huge amount of weight that these boats could, could, could carry. So the foundation stones for, say, a pyramid were nothing. Absolutely nothing for these boats. And they've even found the port at the, uh, that, uh, is, that led up to the pyramids at Giza. You know, and the port is actually right in front of the Sphinx Temple. Oh wow! Okay. So they could get that. That they could get those stones really, really close to the pyramid, and then after that, it's just a short hike up. Okay, that makes absolute sense, and it's kind of fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, there goes a it's, whole alien story, right? Well, <laughs> plus you just threw a wrench at Graham Hancock, Poor so because <laughs> yeah. according, well, to- I, I think. 
I think that goes back to some of our stupid ideas where we think in the 21st century we're so smart and people back then were so dumb they needed aliens to do all this stuff. <laughs> and I think it's the reverse. I think they're quite smart back then, and I think we're dumb, and I, we're still trying to figure I out things. I could not agree with you more, Theo. I think, yeah, you're right. I, yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not evolution where we went from monkeys to what we are today. I think we're going back to being monkeys. All I right. don't know. I think we're, <laughs> we're dumb. The you monkeys know? are we, like, I'll, I'll just order like it on you. Amazon. <laughs> I need a, so I need bad. a pyramid, so I'll just order it on Amazon. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm not even going to go outside because of the pandemic. I'm going to order it on my app, and it's just going to show up because I don't want to go outside the door. You know, so I'm going to have everything done for me. You know, the rise of the machines. You know, <laughs> we find we find temples and pyramids in various states of construction in Egypt. You know, and one of the things that that's kind of been an advantage is that you know when a new king rises to the throne, construction stops. It just stops. Interesting. So we actually have temples and pyramids in various states of construction mm. from, say, its various beginnings and foundations all the way to its completion. Mm. You know, there's, 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 we see these, these columns in, uh, in, in, say, Karnak. But if you go to the very edge of the temple, you see some, some columns that are unfinished. Wow. Okay. You know, they took rough stones, just stacked them on top, and then smoothed it out. They didn't smooth it out first. They just stacked them on top of each other. And then smoothed <laughs> it when they were all stacked. Sometimes sometimes you gotta wonder what, what are these aliens thinking? <laughs> uh, well, it's, their lasers get low in voltage. So. Surely, any self-respecting alien would have actually completed the pyramid. I mean, of course, <laughs> yeah. But I don't think these aliens had much self-respect. <laughs> I, I don't know. You gotta, you gotta. I mean, they're messing with people like us. I mean, come on, how much do you really have? <laughs> I guess we just have to chalk it up to like alien psychology. <laughs> Oh, yeah, man. we have presidents today that, that that do not get reelected, and so their plans get dumped, and you know, uh, for a different party in America. So then, you, you know, plans stop. Things change. Mm -hmm. Policies yeah. change. Same thing yeah. in the ancient world. So yeah. there yeah. is some things that we can take from the 21st century and understand the Bible or Egypt or things. So it does yeah. work. If you use common sense and not go to extremes, just yeah. follow the data points. That's it. Have well, an open pyramid, mind. Yeah. Pyramid building technology didn't start with the Great Pyramids in, in Giza. Right. It's, it, it goes back hundreds of years before then. And it's incremental. Yep. It's incremental. There's no reason to, 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 to resort to, to aliens. It's just, it's just silliness. Yeah. yeah. Well, I like the pyramids silliness. of Joser. Yeah. Yeah. The pyramids of Joser. Uh, Senefru built like, was probably the most prolific pyramid builder in all of Egypt. He built four big pyramids. You know, he built lots of pyramids, you know, and some of them are not exactly engineering marvels. Some of them are like really, really faulty and falling apart. <laughs> because well, he's pioneering this. Well, I've a lot said, of these people were pioneering it. If they're still standing now, that's a miracle because we can't. Yeah, some of them kind of iffy if they're how standing they are, but <laughs> we we can barely build houses that live forty years. So, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Pick it real quick at that that concept of the construction stopping. Was it stopping because the 
Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh had their own pet projects or was it like a form of one-upsmanship? Like, I don't want these certain, you know, of my predecessors to get to the afterlife. So I'm going to stop building their pyramid. Like what were the motivations there? It could, it could depend. Uh, in, in the case of say Senefru's pyramids, uh, they were seen maybe as structurally unsound. Mm. Oh. So they had to start again. Wow. Okay. Oh. We have a couple of those, like the bent pyramid or the Megdoom period that seemed to be structurally unsound. Mm. And then they had to, he had to start over. Did you say McDoom period? Maydoom. Oh, Maydoom. Okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a place. It's a location. I, they said so, uh, near Saqqara. Okay. 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 Um, in say the case of say the reliefs in the, um, in the um, column, the um, uh, promenade of Luxor temple, you had reliefs that were started and then stopped by three different Kings. Huh. Oh, Okay. You had, you know, Horemheb, King Tut, and Seti the First, all starting different aspects of the reliefs there, and then stopping midway through. So are are those straight? Are those striated? So like you have like you know, say say hieroglyphs here, and then you have a whole different section where it starts to. Well, they would start off as a blank wall. Okay. Okay. They start off as a blank wall, and then each king would 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 start on a different section of the wall. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. And then when the king died, that relief stopped. The new king would start in a different section of the wall. Wow. Okay. Huh. Like, uh, you know, you also had this, for example, at, uh, say, the temple of Seti I at Abydos, where his successor, uh, Ramses II, worked on it a little further, but then stopped to do, to do his own temples. Huh. Hmm. That makes sense now. Yeah. Just just take this take a breath here and just look at humanity. We don't need aliens. You know, <laughs> God created us. We're we're quite capable of great things as right. humans. Or kite so, sucking on our own as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we, we can we can be we can be good or we can be bad, just like the deities yeah, or the spirits. I, they can be I either almost, good or bad. I almost imagine for like the first two mentioned, like the new king shows up as like, you know, the old pharaoh. I think he was like hiring his cousin to do this and giving him some money. <laughs> I'm firing that. <laughs> was a lot of nepotism. <laughs> you know, somebody was getting kickbacks. Yeah. It does remind me of like a lot of mayors and governors in New York, all yeah. vying for prime real estate, wanting to put their buildings up. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like the same game. Yeah. Yeah. So humans are still humans. Was it his, was it his cousin or his brother-in-law? I mean, it, did they do the, you know, the, the intermarriage thing or something to keep it in the family or whatever. <laughs> Marry my brother. Right. You know, cousin. That didn't happen as much as you think in Egypt. Oh. Okay. That's okay. what I was curious. Okay. okay. That didn't happen. That happened during pri- uh, times of crisis. Okay. And it's a form of sympathetic magic. Uh, oh. Ernst Cherny did a, stuff for a study of 400 marriages in ancient Egypt and only found two were consanguineous. Really? Really? Very few were actually, say, um, brother or sister or even first cousin marriages. Very few. Now, what confuses the matter is the fact that uh, the Egyptians used as a term of endearment. Uh, you would call your, your wife your sister okay. or yep. your husband your brother. So it was a term of endearment. But the actual incident uh, occurrence of consanguineous marriage was actually quite rare. It did happen 
when there was a succession crisis. Like, for example, King Tut is married to his half-sister because there was a succession crisis. The previous the previous guy to the throne didn't have a kid, didn't have a didn't have an heir. Tut comes to the throne; he doesn't have an heir. Hmm. He's the last of the line of Theban kings. So they marry him off to his half sister, make her the great queen, in hopes that there's this magic going on. You know, he has royal blood; she has royal blood. Together, it must be better. and their kids have three eyes yep (laughs) i i I really i really feel bad for like future historians and archaeologists when like the uh term daddy used in like relationships goes up (laughs) just the confusion that's going to engender (laughs) oh boy what are you saying who's your daddy that's gonna cause just that pig's breakfast as the future linguists try to untangle that (laughs) just don't go to the website (laughs) that does make me uh think about moses in the old testament when he went back in front of pharaoh and presented uh what was his wife's name sarah as his sister, was any of that cultural from the time he spent in Egypt? I can't hear you. You can't hear me uh, again. I can't hear you. He was he was talking about the Abraham story and how yeah. uh, Abraham called uh, Sarah his sister. He's asking if that might have been a carryover from Egypt or something. Well, there there is a blood relationship between Sarah and Abraham. Yeah. Okay, there is a blood relationship there. So you have both going on there. Mm. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> For some reason, early Israelites uh, saw it as sort of verboten to, to say, marry outside of their particular clan. This yeah. all goes into clan politics. Yep. <clears throat> clan politics in the ancient Near East are very, very complicated. Very. Very complicated. And a lot of what mo- motivates the early Israelites is based upon clan politics. Yeah. If you don't read the Old Testament as in particular the book of of uh, Genesis in sort of the view of say clans, you're missing a lot. Yeah. It's the defining structure of of say Israelite society. Yeah. More than the tribes. The tribes are really secondary to the clans. How's, how's clans are everything. So where do we where would we see that uh, in particular for you see it all over the place all over the place uh, I think of a clan as being four generations it's a it's a it's a family group of four generations hmm. we see this for example in say the uh, the genealogies of Genesis five and eleven they're they're both the genealogies of clans not individuals hmm. okay okay. okay. Mm. What you're seeing here is the lifetime of clans, not the lifetime of individuals. Okay. Yeah. It does make sense because it's not even any one, say, uh, any one nation. Because yeah. let's take Sarah, for example. Sarah was part Kushite, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so you have different people from different regions, but the same clan. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So, no, that, that does make sense. Yeah. Hmm. Very interesting. In fact, I, if you do a study of of uh, Israel and Kush, there's actually more relationship than people realize. 
Yeah. So, so what you're saying here is like when we uh, see something like uh, Methuselah, 187 years, we're, we're actually looking at is the clan of Methuselah? Yes, that's what you're looking at. Wow. Okay. And does that, so does that have any overlap yeah. with like the uh, Sumerian Kings list or is that just a completely different? Um, it's, a, it's a little different than the Sumerian Kings list. Now the Sumerian Kings list, there is some, there is some, some, um, um, oh, uh, either some his, uh, sorry, some cultural go, um, meaning going on there. Cause you get like something like 28,000 years in the Sumerian King list line 12,500. There's hinkiness and there's a repetition in the numbers in the Sumerian Kings list that tells us that this is more than just say, um, say a um, guesstimation of years. There's, there's some sort of symbolism happening in the Sumerian Kings list that we're still not quite yet sure of. Okay. Well, I think that's the same thing is going on in Genesis five because now, in the case of Genesis five and 11, there's something else happening here. Okay. And one of the reasons I say there's something else happening here, and um, um, this was actually first pointed out by Friedrich uh, Gardner back in the 19th century. He noticed this, hmm. where the 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 time of the you know how how those those lists are structured, you know, where um, you know such and such a person begat such and such at age X and lived X years. Okay. The problem is that 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 begetting at age X is that it's the beginning of the clan, but not necessarily the age at which the 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 father begat the son. Mm, okay. What we see, for example, like for example, in business occurs both in Genesis five and Genesis eleven. Take the last in the reign of that list, where it talks about Terah begetting um, uh, Abraham, um, um, Haran, and Nahor. Okay, yeah. you find out later on in Genesis twelve. It, it says there that he was uh, that Terah was seventy years old when he begot Abraham, Terah, and Nahor. Right now, we would think we would think by a casual reading of this that. Terah was 70 years old when he begot Abraham. That would be sort of a, a, an intuitive reading of this. We find out in Genesis uh, 12 that Terah was actually 130 or 135, I can't remember which, but he's in his 130s okay. when he begets Abraham. It was one of the other sons that was where Terah was 70, where he became the father. Where the new clan was started. Okay. Okay. Wow. What's happening here is Abraham is being put in the honorific position of the firstborn. Okay. Even though he's not the firstborn. Okay. And that's happening throughout the entire list. Is these people are being put in the honorific position of the firstborn, even though they're not the firstborn. And the same thing happens in Genesis 5. Okay. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem's not the firstborn. Okay. That, that so we see this in throughout the lists here. So, so there's there's a the new the numerical uh, values are denoting significance rather than giving you a literal equivalence of their age. Yeah, it's not giving you chronological data. Yeah. <clears throat> it's the point here is not 
to tell you what the chronology is. Yeah. Because frankly, chronology hadn't even been invented yet. Chronology is, is, is a science that's only 500 years old. They're not doing this for chronology. They're doing this to tell you when the clans began and who's the most significant member of the clan. So this is the Abraham clan. So Abraham is the first is treated yeah. as the firstborn, even though he ain't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is due to pretty much. It's due to it's, significance. It's, it's honoring Terra in, in recognizing when the clan began, but telling you who's the most significant member of the clan. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay. What what determined that significance? Basically, who were the in the direct line for the Toledot? And a Toledot is just the, the Hebrew word for, for genealogy. Now, Toledots are different in, say, Hebrew than they are for, say, Western genealogies. Okay. Western genealogies, we want to find out where we came from. Yeah. We're looking back in time. Right. Hmm. Hebrew Toledot don't work that way. They look forward. Okay. They tell you what the posterity is, what the result is. So they're basically saying, here's Noah in Genesis 11. Here's the result of what Noah is. It's Abraham. Okay. You look at the smaller Toledotes in, say, earlier in the book of Genesis. Here is the, you know, somebody who did something hinky like, like, like Cain or Abel. And here's the result. Gotcha. Okay. Sin propagates. Yeah. It's yeah. about to go to hell in a handbasket. <clears throat> well, even in the somewhat modern age, so new, there is numerical value to the meaning of things. Like there was, uh, there was a, a friend of mine, and he went down to uh, where was he at? I believe he was in the Philippines at the time. And uh, a minister came out, and they introduced her as being fifty years old. And mm -hmm. the guy turned to him. He's like, "What are you talking about? She can't be more than twenty-four. And he said, "No, no, no, no. You don't understand." We're giving the age as her age in wisdom. We don't, we don't, we don't put, we don't, we don't equate her age with her actual age. That's the mm -hmm. age that we're equating to her wisdom. And so, yeah. and so even the modern age, we have that where they call somebody out as being a certain age, yeah. but it's not a real age, There's right? It's a different so it's, significance to yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it denotes a symbolism of something that she is, you know, that, that she symbolizes. Sure. Sweet. Okay, so before we proceed, a word from our sponsor. Hey, it's Gumby here from Bible Over Brews. Are you looking to get some editing done in your podcast? Maybe you don't have the hours or time it takes to edit your content, but you still need to get it done. Maybe you need a customized track or a song for your podcast or your next project without having to worry about copyright issues. Well, look no further than soulworkmusic.com, where this footwork is done for you. I'll get that editing post-production work done right for you or create you that customized song that fits your project or podcast to help support your life's work. If this sounds like what you need, reach out to me at soulworkmusic.com. Again, at soulworkmusic.com. And remember, there's nothing taboo over brew. Yeah. Well, we wow. find this in was... Egypt too, where, for example, the Ramessides were really, really hated by the Theban priesthood. Really hated Thebans hated the Ramessides. They hated that whole dynasty. So what they would often sometimes do is they would say, date things according to the reign of Horemheb. So we have one inscription where it talks about the 52nd year of Horemheb. 
you know, he'd been dead for, for over 20 years. <laughs> they were about to recognize the Ramesides. <laughs> I think we still have that problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Either, either the Jackson 5 and, you know, who's the most famous Jackson? And, yeah. yeah. Or, or right. the Trumps. We don't want to talk about the Trumps exactly. because you know, whatever. Exactly. Just, you know, these dynasties, but who's the most famous or who's you know I hear Hillary's trying for age. re-election. <laughs> <laughs> or the Bush era. Well, which Bush? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so. mm. yeah. Well, that's a good uh, way uh, to to segue into another question about what did the Egyptians think about generally about I don't know, ghosts or the afterlife. Um Oh, the dead interacting with the living, right? Because I, I think that's an interesting question. That's yeah. something I want to explore. Okay. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, the Egyptians had no problems thinking that the Egyptians believed that they had one foot in this world and one foot in the next. Okay. They had no problem thinking that uh, ghosts were all around them, spirits were all around them. They lived in that that sort of phenomenological world where demons were everywhere, ghosts were everywhere, the spirits of the dead walked among them. They had no problems with any of this. They would visit the tombs of their ancestors and have lunch. You know, it was, it was, it was common once a year to, to go to the tombs of their ancestors, get pull out a picnic la- uh, um, basket and talk to the dead. That was Good common, Lord. very, very common, especially during, say, the uh, Festival of the Valley. So wow. this, this was a very common occurrence in ancient Egypt. Okay. It was a common occurrence too. Uh, magic was very, very prevalent in ancient Egypt. The idea that spirits could be manipulated and talked to. Uh, we have one incident where we have a, a letter of a man who, a really pathetic letter, honestly. It's, it's, it's almost kind of sad. You know, you know he, he talks to his dead wife, you know, through a, a chest that, that, he, that would have held her spirit. And he says, you know, um, I, I, I'm taking the last mu- last last piece of money I have to to buy a pole so I can lessen my my labors. Uh, can I have permission to do it? <laughs> you know, he's still asking his wife for permission in the afterlife. Wow. Yeah. Well, I can. It, it's a really that. sad letter, but you know, it does sort of give you an idea of what people were like back then. Mm. Okay. Doesn't doesn't the sun travel through the underworld? You it know, does. Night? Yeah. So even the gods are giving you know food or giving something, but you know you know it, it's not. Well, again, the sun travels through the underworld because crops were growing in the underworld. Yeah, that's what I'm getting. Because at. So people are people are laboring growing, in the fields have, in the underworld. Yes, that's what See, I'm the, getting at. Yes, the Egyptian concept of heaven is whatever your highest status is in your life now. You're holding that status in the next life for eternity. Mm. So if you were a laborer in this life, you're a laborer in the next life. If you're a king in this life, you're a laborer, you're a king in the next life. Okay. You, you don't go up at all. It's not, it's not say a Christian conception of heaven where it's bliss. Okay. It's just more work. Just so, eternal work. So Egypt had very much a, a caste system then. Oh, very much. It's it, it is a, a um it's a stratified culture. Okay. It's a stratified culture, and people were in a particular social strata. Hmm. The bottom strata is your farmers, then it's your slaves, 
Yes, slaves are actually above farmers. Wow. Ouch. <laughs> and then, then you had, say, um, above that, you would have, say, more of the professional classes. You would have your military, your lower ends of the military. You would then have your priests and scribes. Then you'd have your um, nobility, and then you'd have the king. And it was a very, very rigid social structure. You could transcend the social structure, go up or down it, but it didn't happen very often. Mm. I'm curious. I'm in South Asia, and then, uh, you know, they consider the ancient Near East as West Asia. So in South Asia, they even have this thing with like skin color. You know, the darker skin people are, uh, they don't even like it. As a matter of fact, you know, most Americans are trying to get, or Westerners are trying to get their skin darker with the sun or whatever. Over here, they're trying to paint their faces white because they have this aversion to skin color. And I don't know if that's related to being in the sun because you're a laborer. Do they have that in West Asia and the Egyptian idea or... We have skin um, color out of Africa and out it's, of it's a little Egypt. different. Okay, it's a little different in Egypt. Now, understand that Egypt is incredibly xenophobic. Mm. They hate foreigners, absolutely despised and didn't trust foreigners at all. However, it was not necessarily something they judged by skin color. Okay. They judged it more by ethnographic markers. Mm. Now, let me give you a counterexample here that sort of um, – uh, um, amplifies the point, which is the Medjai. Now, the Medjai were, are a very interesting sort of ethnic group. I mean, they're incredibly interesting. Um, they're, they live in the lands of Kush. They're, they're a dark-skinned people. And anytime a Medjai went into any Egyptian city, it was known that they was, these were Medjai. There was no question who they were. See, they just stood out. But the Medjai were incredibly well-trusted they were put in the roles of policemen, community organizers. Um, they were uh, leaders. They were well, well trusted by the Egyptians. Okay. They have a history in, in Egypt that they're well liked, incredibly well liked. You know, you, you go back to even to say the 11th and 12th dynasty and, you know, there's, there's a, there's a um, stila, a border stila on the edge of Nubia. And the, the stila says, you know, no Nubian is allowed to pass north of this stila, except for the Magi. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Here's, here's the history of the Magi, too, is um, in, in the Middle Kingdom, the attitude of, of most, most vassal states was, okay, you, the, the old king would rule, the new king would come up and you'd rebel. And the new king would have to come in and put it down. Hmm. The Medjai took a completely different approach to all of this, which is, yeah, okay, we see the writing on the wall here. We know what's inevitable. We are going to be the best vassals the Egyptians ever had. And what ended up happening was Egyptians ended up, say, when they would conquer a state, they would put the Medjai in charge of the fortresses, make them guards, and they were incredibly trustworthy. They also played a pivotal uh, role in, say, the um, the role with uh, the Egyptians uh, overthrowing, say, the Hyksos rule. Mm. Now they had this scam going on. I mean, they had a good, they had this really interesting scam. 
where they sold themselves as mercenaries to both the Egyptians and say the Kushites. <laughs> and both would, would be mercenaries supposedly guarding the border against the other. <laughs> so they're playing both sides against the middle. Wow. Really good guards and the, right there. <laughs> and the king of Egypt never found out. Wow. So he rewards them with the, with their with their loyal service after the war is over, making them putting them in honored positions all across Egypt. I'm pretty sure I saw that movie. It starred Bruce. <laughs> it, star, it starred Bruce Willis. It was called Last Man Standing, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's, so, it was a great that's, scam. That's very <laughs> they scammed their way into being a trusted ethnic group. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. They scammed their way into being a trusted ethnic group. But their loyalty. But as a result of this, they were incredibly well liked, incredibly trusted, even though they had really dark skin. Huh. But their loyalty <laughs> was to that themselves. That is massive irony. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> that that needs to be a movie. <laughs> Again, it's they called, play a pivotal role it, in, say, the 20th uh, dynasty, where they are, say, intermediaries during the um, the workers' strike at um, at Deir el Medina. The, the tomb workers have to go uh, are going on strike because they're not getting their rations. Okay. And what happens is the uh, Medjai basically say, "Okay, wait, hold it. You're about to, to strike against the king. This is a military dictatorship." I don't want to see anyone get killed. Hmm. So they advise the strikers to say, okay, only strike on your day off. Leave all your tools in the village so you're not accused of theft. And don't go to the port where the king might think you're running away. Everyone stay safe. I'll be an intermediary between you and the mayor. And you'll get you what you want in the end. Interesting. Yeah, so they play a very, very pivotal role in a lot as a, as a social lubricant. Huh. But they're not native Egyptians. Ah. They're not ethnic Egyptians. Their loyalty is to their clan, to themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Regardless of who rules. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any clan today similar? Today? Or we find for like for example, let me let me get uh there is there is an example where these clan politics have really played out, and that's really in say uh Libya. Mm. Mm. Libya is still a clan-based society. Wow. It was the Libyan clans that put Muammar Gaddafi in power, and it's the clans that took him out of power. Yeah. Brings yeah. another question to mind. Uh over here in South Asia, you have a caste system in the Hindu religion. Mm -hmm. And you have the high caste, but it's kind of divided in two parts. The high caste, you have the religious leaders, which are the highest, the Brahmins, because, mm -hmm. you know, they have access to God. But there's somehow they interweave that with the second highest class, which is the warrior class, who ends up being the leaders of the government, like the kings, per se. So they, they kind of, they're, they're second because they're not connected to God as the priest, but they're first over the people. So I didn't know how that works in the Egyptian caste system or, you know, okay. with Pharaoh and the priest. Yeah. Um, Pharaoh is the high priest of every cult in Egypt. Okay. He's the religious leader of every, every temple, every cult in, in Egypt, regardless. Okay. He is the, he's, he's the top dog in the religious hierarchy. He's the Pope of Egypt. Okay. okay. Do, it, um, 
priests could be uh, come from a priestly caste, uh, priestly the priestly strata. Um, but military men served as priests, scribes served as priests. Um, it, it was very, very common for, say, somebody in ancient Egypt, if they were, say, part of the military, to also be part of a, of a priestly caste too. Um, so there was some sort of uh, cross-fertilization. Uh, it was very, very common, say, for a scribe to be a priest. Hmm. Okay. So, you know, there was that sort of thing. It's not quite like what we find in Israelite society where, Every priest in Israelite society had to be of not just the tribe of Aaron, of, of Levi, but also of the clan of Aaron and his descendants. Okay. Mm. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Okay. What's What's interesting to me, like when you have like, I think it's Collins has written about this, but when you have the original call of Moses, it seems like God wanted Moses to be the leader. So where he'd be like the one leader, the single leader. And his reluctance causes God to turn to uh, Aaron as a second. So you get this mm-hmm. bifurcation where you end up with a, a leader and then you get the high priest and they're kind of distinct. And then later on you have prophet, priest, and king, and it's like three. And by the time you get the second temple period, it's back to they only have one leader and they're kind of like trying to figure this out, Yeah, uh, you know, under the Ptolemies and, and under the Greeks, uh, you know, what, why we only have one leader. And then when you get to Jesus, he, he unites everything and he becomes that one leader, Messiah, the anointed one. So I didn't know how that plays with Moses and the Egyptian idea. Well, okay. Even, even in Israeli uh, culture, we also have to recognize that there are exceptions made for certain reasons and for certain um, uh, exceptions and contingencies. For example, uh, Samuel, he's not a Levite. Okay. Hmm. Samuel is uh, from the um, what's the tribe now? Um, um, oh, what's his tribe again? Um, um, Shumite. Uh, what was it? Why can't I remember it? Um, for Samuel, just take a moment here. Yeah, I don't know why my brain's from, decided to. They're from uh, Ephraim. They're Ephraim, Ephraim, that was it. Ephraim. Sorry, yeah. Ephraim. He's an Ephraimite. Okay, but what happens is the tri- the the clan of Eli, who is in charge of say the the tabernacle service at um at Shiloh, they lose all their men. Hmm. You know, all the men of the clan of Eli are wiped out. So for a while, you have no men uh, from the clan of Eli who can do or who are qualified to do temple, uh, you know, the, the, the cultic service at Shiloh. Yeah. You know, the youngest of, of the youngest survivor or the oldest survivor of, of the clan of Eli is a, is a toddler. <laughs> he can't serve. Right. He can't serve. So what happens is Samuel actually has to do temple service for a while. So there's there's exceptions there. And because he is allowed to do temple service, occultic service, at the uh, tabernacle Shiloh, his posterity, Samuel's posterity, is grandfathered into um, are made honorary Levites, even though they're not by blood Elite, um, Levites. <sighs> Wow. Okay. Yeah, so the we do see makes exce- it clear. Yeah. yeah. The, the 
prophecy makes it clear because of what Eli's family does. Yeah. God has to intervene to do something else. Yeah. yeah. And yet then Samuel also later on is complaining, even though his sons are not the greatest, that, you know, the Israelites want a king mm-hmm. to be like everybody else. Yep. And then it yeah. ends up being David who sets that all up, and that yet he can't do it because of his mistakes. So then Solomon has to do it. Right. And then he ends up being idolatrous and then the exile. And so you keep getting God's plan and then what we end up doing and messing yeah. things up. It's a vicious cycle. And David ends up, you know, um, um, you know, the, the chrono, the, sorry, the genealogy, we, we get this genealogy for the descendants of Samuel that trace his descendants back to Levite as sort of a, this, this sort of religious, um, for lack of a better word, fiction. It's it's a basically an on they've been made honorary Levites, so they can serve in the temple as singers. Fascinating. <laughs> of course, later on, because of the exile and different things, you end up with this uh, Ezra, India, Maya, Time, Zadok, and, you mm-hmm. know, that prominence. So there's a filtering going on. Yeah, there there's some exceptions that prove the rule because yeah. of their unfaithfulness. Yeah. All right. If I may, I'd like to take things all the way back to Moses here for a second. Moses. Yeah. No. So. Again. <laughs> so, the whole uh, Moses going up the mount. There's the whole question of like, is does Mo, when Moses comes down, he's like either shiny or has horns, and there's like some yeah. scholarship going back and forth on that. Is there? I know other places in the ancient Near East, there's stuff about the kings having like this uh, divine glory because of their nearness to the gods. Is that in any way present in Egyptian material at all? Not really. You don't really find that in Egyptian material. You find that more in Mesopotamian material than you find in Egyptian material. Mm. All right, so no, no Egyptian version of the llama. No, there's no, there's no um, Egyptian uh, equivalent of the divine glory as such. You see it a little bit in the tale of Sinaue, where mm. Sinaue has to come back to um, sort of face the music. He's, he come has he's, he's summoned to come back to before the king, and he enters in the throne room and he, and he sees you know the king surrounded by a golden throne and a golden kiosk, and there's a radiance of the king, but it's. It's not the same thing. Okay. Uh, okay. And a follow-up question. When God says to Moses, I will make you a God to Pharaoh, is that simply because, do you think that's simply because Moses is standing in God's place, or is it specifically following up that Moses is in some way operating in a similar capacity to the Pharaoh and that he's transcending between uh, human and divine realms? Okay, when we talk about that that sort of uh, pericope, I think we have to be careful about what we mean by God, mm-hmm. a God. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we, when we talk about God in that per, that that whole Exodus narrative, it's anybody who has the power over life and death. Okay, it's okay. anybody. Like for example, one of the one of the sort of. Um, misinterpretations of say the plagues of Egypt is that it is a judgment on the gods of Egypt. Mm. Okay. Of all the 10 plagues, only the last plague, the 10th plague is said to be a judgment on the gods of Egypt. Mm. And yet it's a plague that strikes the firstborn of Egypt. Who are the firstborn of Egypt? The king. It's not the firstborn son. 
It's the heirs of every family. It's, 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 it's very much kind of like those same usage of firstborn we find with Abraham. Okay. You know, Ishmael is the, the chronologically the first, firstborn, but he's not the firstborn. Isaac is. Yeah. Isaac is the heir designate. Mm. So when we look at, say, Egypt, we also have to realize that because of infant mortality was so high, your older brother dies, you're now the firstborn. Right. You're the heir designate. Well, doesn't it? So when we talk about all the firstborn of Egypt, we're just talking about the heir designates of Egypt. That is your power base. That's your future. That's your posterity. That's who you're going to leave all your power to. So when it talks, the text talks about it's a judgment against all the gods of Egypt. It's a judgment against those who hold the power. Okay. The power of life and death. So when God says to Moses, I'm going to make you like a god to Pharaoh. He is telling Moses, I'm going to give you the power of life and death over Egypt. Fascinating. Good Lord. My mind's blown. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Did anybody have any last <laughs> questions for, for Dr. Falk? I don't know if you have much to say to this, and maybe we need to just bring you back because uh, we didn't talk about Egyptian beer. We didn't talk about uh, Abraham training. <laughs> oh, man. Abraham training. Loaves. Lots and lots Abraham, of loaves. Yeah. Abraham's trained martial arts, you know, the 318. So man, yeah, we need you back. We, okay. we need you back for those. So but Mike, we will definitely yeah. do a follow-up on that because as Zechariah and I are both Staunch martial artist and both really As am I. awesome. Uh, what, 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 which are jujitsu, eight years of it. Awesome jujitsu. Uh, I'm Muay Thai. Uh, Zachariah, there you go. So, we definitely have to do a follow up episode on martial arts and beer. <laughs> martial arts and beer sounds good to me. <laughs> All right, uh, uh, go ahead. But, uh, my last question, and if you can't, then we'll just save it for next time. But I'd done some stuff with uh, Douglas Knight on uh, Hebrew cosmology, you know, Genesis mm -hmm. 1. Um, and then there's, there's, you know, a lot of times it seems like there's such emphasis on Mesopotamian and chaos comp and, and whatever else, I don't know. And I'm curious how much of the Egyptian cosmology is more prevalent and is the idea of ma'at at all? Is it too much to ask for that to be a part of what's going on in Genesis 1 and some okay. of the Hebrew cosmology? There is Egyptian cosmology in Genesis 1. Now we have to understand what Genesis 1 really is. Okay, it's 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 we do know that, for example, it is an interaction with the various culting myths okay. of the ancient Near East. But we also have to understand how it emerged. Okay. We have to understand that when the Israelites left Egypt, as I said previously, it's a mixed multitude. Every nation in that mixed multitude had its own creation myth. Mm. You had half dozen Egyptian uh, creation myths. You had Libyan creation myths. You had Amorite creation myths. You had Nubian creation myths. Every nation is coming out of Egypt with its own creation myth. In a sense, what Genesis 1 is, is it's anti-myth. Oh. It's a myth that is presented instead of every other myth that the nation, newly formed nation of Israel is having to engage. 
Okay. Wow. So it's taking pieces and interactions with dozens of myths hmm. and say, this is what Yahweh is like. This is what he's not like. Like, for example, you know, Genesis 1, God says, let there be light, and there was light. This is very, very similar to, say, the God Ta in, in ancient Egypt saying, I speak, I, I, he conceives of something in his mind, and he speaks the words, and it is. Hmm. We see, say, the foundation where, where, you know, humanity is made of the clay, the Adama, the earth. We see that the, the Kanuma myth, where, where the god Kanum creates man and woman on the potter's wheel, okay. out of clay. The Israelites were in Egypt hundreds of years. They had the myths of, say, the Levant, but they also had the myths of Egypt. They're engaging all of that. Okay. So this is almost uh, mythological propaganda in some sense? It's it's an alternative. It's an alternative what, what, to every other myth that they're being having to engage. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it almost be mythological deconstruction? Oh, very much so. Yeah. And in fact, we do find we do find uh, kinds of deconstruction in in the Exodus and Genesis accounts. Like for example, the Ark of the Covenant is not like any other furniture. And yet it has properties of, say, a half dozen kinds of furniture. Okay. But we find that same sort of deconstruction happening in Egyptian furniture in the 19th dynasty. Okay. You know, in the 19th dynasty, barks are taking on the properties of beers. Beers are taking the properties of barks. Thrones are taking the properties of barks and chests and all this. We see this sort of confusion of iconography. We see the same thing happening on the Ark of the Covenant. So they're trying to unite various kind of people groups together with this new shared myth and new shared construction and furniture. Using concepts that they would have been familiar with. Yeah. And that's the important key. They're using the ideas of God and of iconography and of divinity that they would have known in the late Bronze Age and then sort of flipping it all on its head to create new theological understandings. This this tweak said a, a question I kind of I wanted to ask while back when we were talking about some of the stuff we you know take for granted in the Bible when we when we interpret it um, literally. I was trying to think of you know what kind of advice do we offer people who are trying to read the Bible seriously but don't you know aren't at the place where they understand like all those things like that we can't even really. Yeah take a number at face value. We can't even take a number at approximate value. A number can have a completely <laughs> different meaning, which in a sense is, it's humbling. It's, it's cool because it's like to think of just entering the space of like people thinking completely differently about similar concepts. And it's also humbling because you're like, I don't think I can really understand anything. You might come to that place, but it does sound like perhaps like, uh, like I guess my question was, is like what kind of general rules can we offer people not rules, I should say, but guidelines when they're reading the Bible without all this information to mm -hmm. understand something without having to have all the requisite knowledge? Sure. Okay. Here's here's what I basically tell everybody: read the Bible. 
Whether you understand it or not, read it. Okay. You know, this comes back to say the proper application of the doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture. The proper understanding of the perspicuity of scripture is that the essentials are understandable, mm. but not all of it. You know, Peter uh, in Second Peter talks about the writings of Paul and says, there's some hard writings there, some things that are difficult to understand. <laughs> well, Peter's an apostle. If he doesn't get it, you know. <laughs> right. And, and, that's, and that's the thing about Scripture. Scripture gives its secrets reluctantly. Mm. And over time, it forces us to struggle with the text. Well, I... Over time, you know, here's the thing. It's, it's, it's got a message that the simplest child can understand. Yeah. But it's got details that will engage a scholar for a lifetime. What you po well. The point you made, though, I think is I, most people who read the Bible, I don't think understand the, the ideas behind those two people. Because mm -hmm. Peter was what fisherman, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas you look over to Paul, who was trained by the greatest philosophers. Yes, he you know, was trained by trained to know uh, Platonic and Aristotelian philosophies, and so you have somebody who's taking all this grand symbolism and all these great archetypes and all these. So you, in a modern age, you're seeing that where you see. Somebody, well, I'm reading this Bible from a blue collar standpoint, and I don't quite get it. But then you have somebody like yourself who's trained to understand these grander principles, right? So, well, here's, here's the difference too, between Peter and Paul, you know, Paul, Paul taught at a, essentially the uh, first century equivalent of a yeshiva. You know, he, he, he trained at the feet of Gamaliel. Yeah. Okay. He was formally trained in the case of Peter. The, he took the alternate schooling. Think of this kind of like the difference between university and community college. Okay. Peter is not untrained. Peter followed a peripatetic teacher, which was Jesus. And this was very, very common in the first century, where a in the first century, it was really sort of the, um, it was the fashion of the time that Jewish men had to be educated one way or the other. It increased your prospects for marriage. It increased your standing in the community. It was really, really sort of desirable to be educated. I mean, it is today too. You know, you know, you want to send, you want to marry your daughter off to somebody who is completely uh, <laughs> a high school dropout. Probably not. No. Okay. You do want some want your 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 daughter's marriage prospects to at least have something coming into the game. That was the same thing in the first century A.D. Now, the, 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 the formal schools of Jewish training were not available to everyone. They were not available to everyone, either by class or by, um, say, religious standing. But these peripatetic teachers offered an alternative teaching where you would basically sit under a wandering teacher for a number of years and he would educate you. This is what Jesus was doing. He was filling that role. So the disciples were getting an education. Right. Under a teacher. 
So it's not quite fair to say that 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 Peter was completely a blue collar. He wasn't quite. He was he was basically undergoing, say, the community college of his day. Gotcha. No, that that makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I think he just liked beer better. <laughs> and, and frankly, too, most people back then were polyglots. Yeah. We, we, we talk about ignorant people. Peter, well, he could speak more languages than most of us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, you know, possibly Latin. Right. I mean, I get grad students who who who, who don't even who don't even have French and German or Hebrew, and it's like you want to you want to pull off a graduate degree and you have no languages under your belt other than English. Uh yeah, I think again. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's, yeah, I get it. I get it. But that's just trying to equate those two yeah. levels of why he would see them as. But also too, consider this, that just about every Christian of the first century knew his old Testament backwards and forwards. Yeah. You know, we see this in Hebrew in the, in the book of Hebrews, where it talks about these ignorant Christians who only understand the old Testament. Right. Oh gosh, we'd be lucky today to have Christians that only understand the Old Testament. Amen. <laughs> you know, the, the, I'm sorry. The 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 the, he, the author of Hebrews as as is is just to me like griping. Come on, <laughs> you don't know how bad it can get. <laughs> um. So you know, Peter understands his his Old Testament backwards and forwards. Yo, hands down for him. With all that, the writings of Paul are still hard. Yeah, yeah. I that mean, tells you sort of the range uh, that Scripture can present. Yeah. It can present us with, with, with doctrines and the means of salvation that, as I said, the youngest child can understand. Yeah. I came to Christ when I was age seven. Okay? Yep. As a seven-year-old, I understood the way of salvation. But scripture still has for me things it has to unveil, to reveal. And I'm still learning a, a lifetime in. Yeah. You know, 40 plus years later, I'm still grappling with the scriptures, engaging it, and learning from them. Yeah. Mm. But then again, too, one of the great things about having, say, more and more, say, education is. I can open the scriptures and learn something new every time I read. Because it's given me the tools to do that. Not everyone will have those tools, but I encourage everyone to read their Bible, regardless of their level. Yep, absolutely. And in our modern age, there's more and more ways to dive deeper and deeper in. So, Oh, you've never had more access to all the Bible tools than now. You can you can get Greek and Hebrew translation or um, transliterations online. Uh, there's all sorts of resources that that just didn't exist 50 years ago. Just amazing resources are available today. Plus, great books. And there's like, never been less excuse to be biblically ignorant than today. Chris, never been less excuse. Plus, great books like yours. This is a good place for us to say that we'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> Because well, we I'd have, love to be back. We have so much more to talk about, like martial arts and beer. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> wow. That'd be cool. <laughs> right. So uh, I do just want to say that you if you want more 
and you can't wait, go to the YouTube channel, Ancient Egypt and the Bible. Support uh, Dr. Falk and his desire to write his next book. Uh, you know, we're, you know, just he has Patreon. Just get behind this guy. You could see today how simple the conversation was. He did not go over anybody's head. He's really down to earth. He can make it simplified for you to understand. The Bible can be defended even against the most scrutinous scholarship, but you don't have to just like delete entire centuries of history to make the Bible work. <laughs> You don't have to go to the games, that the sensationalism that these people do, either on the right or the left, to disprove or prove the Bible. It can be managed in bite-sized pieces, and ancient Egypt and the Bible on YouTube is a good way for you to get your feet wet if you want more of this information. And get behind Dr. Falk, because we want that next book. Absolutely. And, and that it, next book is, uh, I'm, I'm looking to do a book on the 10 plagues of Egypt. Perfect. From an Egyptian perspective. Yeah. And again, if you just go, mm. just go to YouTube and just, just type in David Falk, it pulls his station right up. There's his channel. So there's no problem finding him. Uh, Ryan, any last words? No, uh, go on. No, uh, thanks. This was uh, pretty good. Pretty great. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure to be on here and uh, enjoying uh, a good um, uh, liquor as well. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Zechariah? I'm good. It was great, great having you. It was fun talk. Got some nice humor. Loved the, uh, loved the Medjai scam. <laughs> 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 we're, we're used to that scam already, Zach. You know we are. <laughs> Uh, Keith, exactly. keeps repeating itself. Yeah, uh, Keith, I'm I'm just uh, sitting here contemplating all the, the different meanings over time of the number forty. So <laughs> I'll keep my head spinning for a while. Appreciate you being on. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. Yeah, no, I I feel the same way, Keith. Uh, I mean, the whole idea of looking through things through the vision and goggles of just a clan perspective really undercuts i think atheists and people who just want to dismiss everything yeah and try to throw that out and half you the know, believers well, well how can this guy be 700 something years old mm. it's obviously a lie and false mm. and i'm like mm. wow that, that was just mind-blowing so i appreciate your work your research uh dr fault and i look forward to having you back on man yeah absolutely again well, thank you again if you go to amazon the name of his book was what again the Ark of the Covenant in its Egyptian context, an illustrated journey. There we go. Awesome. If you go to type type in David Falk in a YouTube. That's the cover. That's what it looks like. There we go. <laughs> nice. It'll pull his channel right up. I highly suggest you go right to his playlist, Evidence for the Exodus. That evidence is phenomenal. I mean, it was mind-numbing for me to go through. It was just... Wow. Awesome. <laughs> Do it in bite-sized increments. <laughs> so, and again, if you want to find Bible Over Brews, please do. Go to all of our social media pages. We're on all of them. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Find us. We're on Patreon, please, or even anchor.fm for such Bible Over Brews. Buy us a few beers yes. so we can keep bringing you awesome stuff like this. There's nothing 
Taboo Over Brew. Godspeed. <laughs>